Parents everywhere are going through so much stress and uncertainty right now. It's hard to find sources of relief nowadays. This is why we at Parent Driven Development love Nurture Life. Nurture Life provides nutritious, ready-to-eat meals for babies starting at 10 months old. Toddlers, kids, and teens delivered fresh right to your door. Meals are designed to meet the nutrient and portion needs for each age group and are developed by Nurture Life's registered dietitians and chefs. Meals are focused on organic produce, antibiotic and hormone-free proteins, and whole grains, and offer a full serving of veggies in every meal. Nurture Life has recently launched new and exciting meals, such as the chicken, sweet potato, and waffle finger food for babies, and the butter chicken with peas, rice, and mini naan for toddlers, kids, and teens. In addition to these new offerings, there will also be additional meals that will be available on the menu for a limited time period to continue to provide innovative, flavorful, and unique meal options for families. Nurture Life's easy subscription model allows you to sign up for weekly deliveries, skip weeks, or pause your subscription whenever you want. You can build your own box to select the right mix of meals for your family by age group, dietary restrictions, and allergies. Get the best meals for your kids and family delivered right to your door. Available for every zip code across the contiguous United States. Get 30% off your first two Nurture Life orders with the code PARENTDRIVEN30. Visit NurtureLife.com to redeem and find a moment of relief when it comes to mealtime. Welcome to Parent Driven Development. I am Arit, and today I'm here with my friend Allison. Hi, I'm Allison, and today I'm here with my friend Kay Wu. Hi, I'm Kay Wu, and today we are here with our guest, Amija Godfrey. First, just a quick plug for our Patreon before we move into the show. We love being able to provide you with this content and we very much want to continue to do so. We are on Patreon and would love your support. Most people give just $5 a month, which really helps us continue to do what we love and share it with all of you. We thank you for your support. And now on to the show. So we're here today with Misha Godfrey, who will be chatting with us about Jumbo, the book subscription service that she founded. Misha is a former affordable housing developer, lawyer, and founder of Jumbo Books. Jumbo, which means both hello and welcome in Swahili, is a book subscription service for children aged 0 to 13, where all the books feature lead characters who are children of color. The stories in Jumbo Books focus on the beauty of childhood, the joys of friendship and family, the thrill of new adventures, the wonderful tapestry that is the life of a child of color. Misha is passionate about helping parents raise children who won't need to be taught how to tolerate people who are different from themselves because they will expect and enjoy healthy inclusion. Jumbo Book Club members will recognize the same humanity in those who may not share their experiences that they see in those who do. Misha lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband and three children. Welcome, Misha, to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I was so excited when your team reached out for doing an episode of our show because I, as I started browsing the page for Jumbo Books, it so called out to me that it looks like a key part of the philosophy behind the subscription service is that you had a phrase much more elegantly in your website copy, but essentially like, you know, it's not just, oh, special cultural holiday themes. It's, it's you know, like child of color joins a sports team and learns about teamwork and friendship, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought absolutely. that that was so awesome. And I, I definitely personally feel a need for that raising a biracial child myself. 
Yes, absolutely. We wanted children of color to know that, as someone said to me earlier this week, that your experiences don't just resonate in trauma and your experiences aren't just regulated to holidays, that you have a whole full life and all of that is worthy of being the center of attention, that you're not the sidekick, you are the main character in your own life and that that has value and that everyone should read those stories, not just kids who look like the stars of those stories. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and another part of what I was reflecting on having grown up Chinese American in, in the US myself, as I remember from stories from my parents that when I was little, like, like I, at very young ages, I never had an issue with pretending to be like Cinderella, who I obviously looked nothing like. <laughs> that was like no big deal at, at the ages when, when that was happening. But then I guess it's, it's about the, the time that I period I grew up in, like by the time, you know, I was regularly watching something like the Power Rangers. Like, I think at that point I was taking in the messages like, oh, I'm like, I'm supposed to identify with the mo- like the Asian character in the group, whether or not I actually share any interests or feel any commonality with her kind of thing. So one question that I have for you is I was I know that the subscription service covers a pretty decent age range, but I was curious if you'd found in your research any advice you have for parents on when when especially might be a good time to start that children start forming these ideas about representation in their community and seeing themselves. Sure. A good time to start is yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Really because kids you know, as young as infants start to recognize that people look different. And this is not because the infant is racist, right? It's because of the way our brains work. We have these big, complicated brains that take in so much information that we very early on start to categorize things by the way that they look so that we can understand the world. And so, you know, the research does show that even very young infants start to recognize the race of their caregivers and to give more love and ha- and be more well disposed towards people who look like their caregivers. So we really can't start too early in exposing our kids to a wide range of people and through our actions and the things that they see that we feel are important showing them that everybody matters and everyone is important. When kids are young, we suggest more sort of race positive books, which are those books that just radically normalize children of color. So instead of, you know, Maria celebrates El Dia de los Muertos, you have Maria doesn't want to go to bed. It's great that she celebrates El Dia de los Muertos because that's part of her, but it's not all of her. And we should see that all kids share a lot of the same hopes and dreams and experiences when they're children and you'll see their individuality and personhood apart from as well as informed by their race. Yes. Universal things in childhood, not not wanting to go to sleep, not Mm -hmm. wanting to brush their teeth. Right. I want to eat the vegetables. <laughs> yes, all of those things. And then like awesome my God. daughter loves fairies and yeah. things like that. So Yeah, I think that is so that was one of the things that stood out to me when I was kind of doing my background research on you, Mija, was 
really that commitment. I like how you said it, normalizing the, the, the life experiences of children of color, because it, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with my son. He's eight and a half. And we were talking about Martin Luther King. And at some point during the conversation, he makes a comment to the effect of, he hopes that he could accomplish something that great, you know, in his life, you know. Yeah. And a part of me, you know, definitely resonated with that. But then a part of me also felt like, you know, it's 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 interesting how in his young mind, maybe he feels that that's the only way that he can make a difference mm-hmm. as a black boy to be a black man, you know, and. Yeah. I noticed that and I wouldn't say I was worried per se, but it was just an interesting observation. And I was able to, you know, steer the conversation toward, like you said, normalizing your life now and your life now is, is impactful and important. And so if you could talk more just about that angle that you're taking with Jumbo Brooks, which is, which I think is amazing, but if you could talk more about kind of how you came to that to that value for what you're doing. Sure. We focused on books because we think books are a really good entry point for people. You don't have to be nervous about approaching a book. You can approach a book with no knowledge and gain some. And it's a great way of inviting diversity into your home that you may not have in your neighborhood or school or friend group. So, you know, that's one reason we wanted to start with books, but I completely hear what you're saying about your son. And when I think about my daughters, I don't want them to have to do race work, right? I want this, I want us to finish it. I want us to be done and I want them to be able to go and do totally random things that, you know, white people do all the time. Like, you know, I am interested in, in, in ocean. So I go and I become an oceanographer. You know, we watch Shark Week and everybody on Shark Week is always white. And I'm like, this can't be. People of all, of all races really like sharks and oceans and things. But for some reason, you know, we're all stuck doing other stuff. So, you know, one thing I really liked when we moved to Atlanta, we moved to Atlanta from New York. And certainly New York is does not cabin or crib people of color at all. But One thing I liked when I came to Atlanta was that black people were in all different kinds of careers that weren't necessarily expected. So like one of my husband's best friends actually was a diver at the Georgia Aquarium. It's like he does what? He had other friends who, you know, had been doing skateboarding professionally for a long time. Like I want our kids to have the total freedom to feel like they can do things like that, that they belong in any space, that they can do anything and they're not held back by what people think the other folks who look like you should or should not be doing. Yeah, I think that that's really powerful for a child to have that realization of like, oh, that's that's an option for me. And that that is a possibility. And certainly as a parent, I would love to foster that sense of, yeah, I mean, I I believe in them. I believe that they can do anything they want and to be able to pass that on and, and help them believe that for themselves as well. Absolutely. And there are great books that, you know, I try to send out that will show kids 
you know, them doing, doing things that aren't ethnically expected. So the whole series of, of Leo loves and Leo loves to swim is one. And Leo is a little black boy. And, you know, there are some, you know, myths around black people and swimming. Well, you know, one reason black people didn't learn how to swim before is because they did not have access to public pools because they were not allowed to enter public pools. So I love to show things like Jabari Jumps is another book where a little black boy is jumping into a big pool. We also sent the book I Am Human by Peter Reynolds and Susan Verde. And that's wonderful because it has this picture of a black boy on the cover and it says, I am human. And it's just, to me, a really high impact moment. But, you know, this kid is so much more than, you know, just the black boy. Although that is an important part of his personality, there's so much more that informs who he is. My son just read that one in kindergarten this week with their three virtual kindergarten. And they talked about I am human. It was one of the books that, that they read this week. Yeah, I'm curious how you pick like which books and beyond sort of like, you know, making sure it's normalized, etc. How do you pick which books to send out or, you know, what sort of grabs your attention? Sure. It's important to us that all the books are fiction. So we don't we might blog about books that are nonfiction and talk about, you know, sort of heroic characters. But the books that we send are all fiction and they have to star a child of color. So not animals or aliens. They have to star children of color and it has to be a good story. I'm really drawn to books where the author does a great job of using the few words that you're allotted as a children's book author to create a new world, to create characters that we care about and a story or a theme that's impactful. It's like, so something that a kid will remember, something that a kid will want to read night after night. One book that we have by Ari Chung is called Out, and it's just hilarious. It's this little boy in his crib, and he and the dog go on this huge adventure at night because he wants out of the crib. So he crawls on top of the dog, and he and the dog just kind of run roughshod through the house. While his parents, who are in a mixed race um, relationship, are watching TV. And it's just a really cute story, but I think one that kids like to return to time after time. I like the specification around the characters starring in the story because I'm sure you know more specifically, but I feel like I recently read some statistic where they do surveys of representation in children's literature. And it's, it's, isn't it something like, the number of new children's book published that star, you know, inanimate characters like trucks or yes. mm -hmm. uh, animals or fantasy characters like that's mm -hmm. more than stories that star children of color. Or yes, it's only fourteen like percent. Mm -hmm. Only fourteen percent of books that are being published now star children of color. And it's, it's interesting for me because I'm so deep in that particular part of the industry that I'm thinking, gosh, there's so much I can't possibly read it all. And then, you know, when you look at the at the bigger numbers, you realize, gosh, this is just a small drop in the bucket and there needs to be a whole bucket full. I have a question about that you touched upon a little bit earlier, which is, you know, you're, you're talking through some of some of the books. I feel they're written in reaction to common stereotypes and 
biases that that might be held. And I'm wondering if those are conversations you have with your children as you're reading those books or how you would go about introducing ideas like that. Because I've certainly been in conversations where I think people are still a little bit on the side of, you know, sort of, sort of still ascribing to the idea of like, oh, we should just be colorblind and talking about it just like makes it, we're just reinforcing it. Or like, I don't want my child mm-hmm. to pick up these ideas that are about the, the, the races that they belong to and just it will just end up perpetuating it. But sharing that context, I feel like is is part of the education as well. But it but it can be a complex and, and tricky topic as well. So yeah, just to know if you had advice around there. Sure, I think you're 100% right. If we do not talk about racism to our children, that does not mean they will never hear about <laughs> racism <laughs> or experience it or, you know, start to understand what is in the air that we're breathing, right? So it's really important to confront the stereotypes straight on. I think one book that that we have that I really love is called Can I Touch Your Hair? And it is by Irene Latham and Charles Waltham, I want to say, but I may be messing up his last name. The two of them are poets. And so Irene is a white woman and Charles is a black man and they wrote poems in the persona of fourth graders who have been told to write poems about your life. And it's a really great book for starting conversations about the way race is lived and perceived today. Because, you know, there's a poem about you know, where the, the white girl is like, you know, gosh, I really like Dustin So's hair. But I don't think I can touch their hair. I hide behind my hair. It's a yellow curtain in front of my face. And she talks about uh, in another poem how her aunt doesn't think it's a good idea to go to certain neighborhoods after dark. And then you see the boy's view of hair and, you know, why are people making fun of me? who are trying to be like me, who are dressed like me and trying to talk the way they think my people, quote unquote, talk. Um, it's a really, really good book for starting conversations because just hoping that if we don't mention it, our kids will never know about it does not work. They will hear about it from other adults. They'll hear about it from other kids. I remember when my child was about two and a half, she, this is my oldest, she'd come home from school and told me that a little boy told her she was black and she's not, she's brown. And I was like, oh God, she's too fine. This is the world. Like they're going yeah. to talk to other people. They're going to get a sense of, you know, what you're supposed to do and not. When I was a kid, I was told over and over again, because my uncle loved playing tennis, that black people don't play tennis. Now, this was before the uh, Williams yeah. sisters, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? And it was just like, that was it. What is he doing out there? So like I said, we have to we have to confront it head on and tell our kids what we think is important and, and what we know to be true. Earlier on, you made a comment that stuck with me when you said that you didn't want your children to do race work. And I was hoping you would talk to us a bit about any sort of pushback or even backlash 
that you may have experienced as a result of the focus that you've chosen for, for Jambo books? Because on the one hand, I feel like there's this sense of, or there's this expectation that people of color carry a responsibility to further the cause of people of color, whether it's in academics or in the corporate world. You know, I, being a developer, I'm very intimate with uh, several founders that are people of color. And so there's this burden or pressure that whatever you're doing, you need to be advancing the cause of quote unquote, your people. And so when you made that comment, I just, I, I'm just curious as to how you've handled any pushback or backlash or criticism about the, the particular focus that you've chosen to, to pursue with Jumbo Book Club. Sure. I have gotten a little bit of pushback and it's always well-meaning, I think, but it's just not where our mission is. So I did have someone suggest to me that, you know, you could sell a lot more books if you included white children in the books. And I said, yes, but you can just go to Barnes and Noble for that. I mean, you don't really need me to curate and, and read lots of books and choose the ones that, you know, are really compelling and engaging stories. But this person was very adamant that, you know, you should, you should, just give the white kids a little section. And I was like, but you have the whole yeah. library. You have the whole bookstore. What do we need a little section for? Let us have a little piece. So, so that was one. And another bit of pushback that I've gotten is that we do include children who live in families that are quote non-traditional, right? So families take all sorts of shapes. Some are grandparent led single parent led, two moms, two dads, you know, all sorts of different configurations. And again, we want the children to read these books to know that their story matters and that it is a central story in this in this great fabric that creates the stories of America. And so we want them to be able to see themselves. And I did get some pushback from some folks who were like, oh, I don't really want my kids to see, you know, two dads in a book. And for a while, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't send those books. But then the more that you, I pay attention, the more that I can't turn my back on families whose setup is different from mine, right? So I can't look at the stories about the transgender women who are being killed, the black, you know, transgendered women who are being killed, left in alleys, left on the street, like they just don't matter at all. I can't look at that and say, gosh, that's a sad story. I feel bad for her. And then refuse to send a book where a little girl happens to have two dads who are hanging up streamers in the background of her birthday party. So those are the two areas where I have had pushback and just had to decide where do I stand? And, you know, it's not for every family, but that's okay too. I've often heard that about actually as, as something that's very helpful for, for having successful small businesses is, is not in fact to try to appeal to the broadest demographic that you can think of, that you do have, you know, a, a target market segment in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. So that makes perfect sense to me. And the the first piece of uh, pushback in particular 
maybe you just laugh a little bit of like, uh, I feel like that's sort of just missing the point, but yes, okay, yes. you know, <laughs> make fine. a little corner for the white kids. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had a bit of a uh, of a home logistics question for you as someone who is involved in this business is what tips do you have for book storage? Because <laughs> I imagine your your home is, is quite full and you see even more options available and our home setup we, we live in a bi level, but our my husband and I both work from home even before COVID. So the lower level is basically for all that. So we're more or less, you know, two parents, two kids, and essentially a two-bedroom apartment. And I keep thinking like, oh, I probably just have to really suck it up and add like a lot more shelving up and down all of our walls. And I don't know, like live inside Bell's library and Beauty and the Beast, which is like <laughs> wall-to-wall books like that. But yes. I'm not quite there yet. So uh, yeah, how's your setup like? That is actually what we're doing. We're adding bookshelves. <laughs> <laughs> Like you said, there are so many books and I have stopped shipping out of my home. Thank goodness. But I still have a lot of books that I've read that I want to be able to go back and look at and browse through. And so we have fireplaces in in a couple of rooms. So because the fireplace comes out of the wall a little bit, you have some space to try to do built in bookshelves there. So we've got a carpenter that we worked with to help on a guest bedroom that I'm going to hire to put in some more bookshelves because I don't know what else to do. I also, though, do keep a lot of books in the little libraries around the neighborhood. Like, I do not mind cycling things right back through there. If I'm done with the book, I've, you know, got some notes on it, then I'm happy to pass it forward to some other child to enjoy. I love the idea of the just having that additional custom built-ins and that would totally increase my interest in, if I were looking at a house to, to buy kind of thing. That's awesome. All right. So now is the segment of our show where we talk about our genius and fails. So a genius moment, a, a moment in the last few weeks that just something went really well or you did something with, that was just pure genius or a fail. So something that maybe was not so great that happened in in the last few weeks. Did I want to go first? I've got one. My son recently turned three in the last few weeks. And so I had to update my medium to long-term project list from make photo book of year two, because I did make a photo book of year one, but now I have to make photo book of year two and year three is, is, is now attached to it. And I still want to, so it's still on there, but I'm, I'm feeling some guilt about that. And also for the fact that our second child, like for sure, the number of photos and videos per day that she has been alive is just like that ratio is way, way, way lower. And, uh, I, I feel like I'm gonna have to make it up to her someday somehow. Nice. I've got one. It's such a fail. So. We started virtual kindergarten, I guess a couple weeks, like two weeks ago now, a few weeks ago now. And on the first week of virtual kindergarten, we also had my daughter's two and a half year pediatrician visit. And it was like two days into virtual kindergarten. Anyway, the morning was just like a little nuts getting everyone settled and everything. It was a virtual visit. So I like log on. I try to convince Layla to come into the room with me. She was having none of it. Log on. Of course, the pediatrician is like there exactly on time, which like 
it never happens, right? So I'm just like sitting here, no child, waiting for, you know, trying to like be like, come on, come on. And I will say that Layla at two and a half, she speaks for herself and that is for sure. And anyway, so, so finally, like my husband comes in carrying her. We try to get her to interact with the doctor. She like wriggles out of his arms and runs away. And then she just starts like from the doorway of the room that we're in, just starts like throwing toys into the room, like just like a whatever. So you see her in the, in the background, just like her, like, you know, angrily throwing, you don't see her, but you just see her like angrily throwing toys into the room. And we're like, we're like late, you know, we're like, Layla, please stop doing that, you know, come in. And she just like, I'm talking about how verbal she is now and how like all these new like developmental milestones and all she's doing is grunting. She like refuses to talk. And then it gets like this is a 30 minute appointment right and we're like already so frazzled and then like 10 minutes into the appointment so the appointment was supposed to end like right at when my son was supposed to have his break for lunch anyway like 10 minutes into the appointment my son comes sort of bounding into the room my husband like both turn to him like just stop listening to the doctor both turn to him at the same time and go you should be in school why aren't you still upstairs in school <laughs> And he's like, he's like, but, but we finished and we, and like up until that point, one of us had always been in the room with him because it was still the first three, like two, three days of kindergarten. He was like, but we finished. And I was like, what do you, we were like, what do you mean you finished? Anyway, it was just, he was like, no, we finished. Like the teacher, like she, she stopped the zoom. She said it was time for, she said it was time for lunch. And anyway, it was just like, it was, it was such a, it was such a mess. And I'm sure that it was not, I'm sure that it was not like the worst the pediatrician has seen, but it was so funny because at the end she was like, she was like, it seems like you're doing a great job. <laughs> seems like things are going fine. <laughs> and I, you know, I hung up the, I hung up the, the meeting and I was just like, uh, that was exhausting. I was like, thank goodness we've like built up some credibility with our, you know, pediatrician over, you know, and this is like the, this is an appointment for our second child. I was like, oh my God, I have a headache. That was a mess. So it was just a messy, messy fail. <laughs> well, Allison, I would just like to register my shock and awe that you're raising a daughter who speaks her mind. Like, oh my, who knew? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I have, I would consider a mini genius. It's mini and it's potty training related yet again. So my, my daughter, I had started potty training her with the kitty that like the kitty toilet, but then quickly discovered that it's probably better to potty train her on the actual toilet. And so we got one of those seats that's like you have the adult seat and then you have the child seat that you can put, you know, you can put over the adult seat and everything's like it's two seats in one kind of. And so she's using that now. And so we turned, I taped up the kitty toilet to serve as a stool, right? And so the way it's shaped, so we store it at the back of the, like over the, the water tank of the toilet. That's where we keep it, right? But it only stays secure or like it, it's, it, it's shaped funny. And so you can only set it on one side and it will stay. If you set it on any other side of the kitty toilet turned stool, it will rock and it will fall off. 
And so in potty training my daughter, I was always the one bringing the stool down and putting it back because in my mind, I felt like it, you know, it's too much for her to figure out that you have to put it on this side specifically or else it won't stay. But she quickly started, she's on this, mammy do it, mammy do it, which is let me do it. <laughs> and so every single thing you try to do for her, she's yelling, mammy do it, right? And so this became one of those things where she was like, she wants to bring the stool down and she wants to put it back. And so bringing it down wasn't a problem for me, but it was the putting it back. But I guess it's more a genius for her than for me. Okay, so let me restate that. It's a genius for her because on the first try, she got it on the right side and something clicked in her mind to the effect of she has never tried to put it any other way. And sometimes she may pick it up like the wrong way, quote unquote. But even before attempting to put it on the water tank, she will correct herself and put it on the flat side, which allows it to stay. So in hindsight, I'm like, I wonder why I did it for so long when, you know, she's obviously very capable of doing that part of it by herself. So I guess that's a genius for my daughter. Nice. Misha, do you have one? I do. And it's sort of a mix of a genius and a, and a fail. My daughter, my oldest daughter is in a pod with a couple of other kids that she can play with so that she doesn't go completely crazy and neither do we. And she loves going through all my books. And of course, she has a lot of books. And one book that I bought her is called Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the Negro National Anthem. It's actually a poem, but this particular book has the, has all the words to the song, to the poem, and it's illustrated with these really difficult lithographs, but she loves it. And the lithographs are of, you know, people, you know, leaving slavery, it looks like, or somebody being hit, somebody on the ground, like it's, it's serious, but it's a kid's book and she loves it. So she goes through it all the time. She asks me to sing the song, <laughs> a very hard song to sing. And she tells me, mommy, you tried really hard. So <laughs> thanks for that. But she's so into it. She's reading it all the time. And so her little friend comes over and her friend is white. Her dad's from like Sweden. The mom is from New York. And I'm just eavesdropping as they're playing. So she starts showing her friend the book and she's showing her the pictures. And she's like, this is what white people did to my people. Oh, Lord. And I was like, oh, oh, boy. Oh, mistakes have been made. And the little girl's like, nah, not my people. And she's like, yes, all of your people. Oh boy. So I'm just listening. I'm trying to see how they're going to get through this. And they just sort of go back and forth a little bit and then drop it and, you know, go on to play with fairies. And so I talked to the little girl's mom when she comes. I said, look, so we have this book and, you know, my daughter really likes it. But then she told your daughter that her, her people had oppressed. <laughs> you know, our people. And, you know, I really hope that you're not furious at me. I will never let her come over again because this is a very sweet little girl. And she, the mother was actually like, no, it's totally fine. I get it. You know, we'll have a talk about, you know, history as we, you know, walk home. And I felt like on the one hand, I had done well, giving my child a sense of her history and where, you know, where her people come from and sort of our 
our struggle here as well as overcoming. But I did say we don't just roll on people and tell them that they have been oppressing us. It's a little bit of a more difficult conversation to have. And that just kind of reminds me of what you were talking about earlier, Amrit, about, you know, me wanting one of my kids not to have to do race work. Like it's hard and it's draining. And, you know, imagine having to tell someone that your life matters and then having that be a controversial statement. Like I don't want them to have to go through that. I want them to have all new and different issues to fight. Like my oldest is a big environmentalist. I want her to go and work for the environment if that's what she chooses and not have to worry about how she's being viewed as a black woman working for the environment. So I don't know. It's tough over here. (laughs) So we're winning and failing and, you know, finding that we have allies in places that we didn't suspect. Yeah, that's great. Amija, if folks want to find more about you on the internet, where can they look? Please come to jambobooks.com. That's J-A-M-B-O books.com. And you can find out about our book subscription service. And the About Us talks a little bit about my family, but really very little. If you want to contact me directly, you can reach me at info at jambobooks.com. I really appreciate you all having me on today. We're so, so glad that you were able to join us. I've been following the blog that you write as well. Uh, I have been appreciating the stories that you've been sharing there. So lots of, lots of great resources. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to the Parent Driven Development Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions that you'd like us to chat about on air, email us at panel at parentdrivendevelopment.com or find us on Twitter at Parent Driven Dev. And if you like what you hear, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Parent Driven Dev, or rate us on iTunes. 